Expedition 44 here with Matt and Ryan. Today we are in part five on Sermon on the Mount, kind of bringing it all together, completing the whole overall look. And today we're going to start with Matthew 6:19, which is finding our treasures. Yep, it says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp for the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, then, the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So... Something we always talk about on our videos is the retribution principle. And throughout time, man has wrestled with this. We mm -hmm. still wrestle with this. So mm -hmm. today it flushes out in the health and wealth prosperity gospel. So the idea of the retribution principle is would God bless some because they are obedient to the calling and the following of him? Yep. So what we get here from Jesus's message is Kind of that principle, we see that in a huge way in Deuteronomy 28, and there's no doubt, like you said, Jesus' contemporaries were seeped in this. But the Bible also has a long line of prophets who called out Israel for yes. their idolatry and also accused them of injustice and not taking care of those who had little. This is really hard to frame because... God wants a relationship with us, mm -hmm. and so he's calling a relationship. Matt and I are friends, and so obviously if we have an intimate relationship together and Matt asked me to do something for him, I'm going to do whatever I can for him because the relationship has kind of set that foundation where somebody I don't know at all and maybe they ask me, maybe I should just do everything in the same way out of Christian principle, but we don't often do that. Mm -hmm. And so in any relationship, there's a little bit of retribution principle, but I think where we stumble is sometimes people start to think that it's like this checklist yeah, or series formula. of like, if I do this, God will bless me and I will be prosperous and everything mm -hmm. else. When the whole message of of the Sermon on the Mount so far has been backwards thinking. Mm -hmm. That's not the way it works. So this is a constant wrestle throughout the scripture, the book of Job, and now Jesus again touches on it. Yeah, and so in this section here, Jesus' message can be reduced to really just three ideas. To live simply, uh, that possessions can be idolatrous, and that we should trust God. Yes. And so Matthew has three sayings here in um, basically verses 19 to 24 in, in chapter 6. And so he's talking about treasures, and then our eyes and then serving two masters. So let's kind of just touch on each one as we go through this section. And we use the word disentanglement. Mm -hmm. And so through all three of them, we're going to kind of look at how Jesus says to live a more simple life, purely following mm -hmm. what he asks uh, of us and to not be entangled of the things of the world. Yep. So we start with treasures. So treasures involve possessions, but it's not just the same as having possessions. Right. It is basically the spirit of acquiring things. Yes. So that's basically what you can sum it up there. There's a push to get eternal and not, you know, into the things of the world. So, you know, it's it's more than just the toys, though. It's about all things. It encompasses, don't be don't be in the world, but follow me. Mm -hmm. Your your priority, your, a lot of times people say time, talent, and treasures uh -huh. should be towards the kingdom. Yeah, um, so we get into here asking the question, well, what does last? Right. <laughs> Paul, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is the thing that lasts. Yeah. So when we begin to focus on eternal things like loving God and loving our neighbors, the 
things of money and possessions don't seem to matter so much. Yeah. In Psalms uh, 37, 4, it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And the question is, is where is your heart? Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't read that into it. And that's kind of what this is asking is where mm -hmm. is your heart? Yeah. And in the letters to Timothy, Paul talks about um, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil, not just yeah. money itself. So if you, a lot of people get that wrong. Yeah. They, they kind of point right at money. And, you know, mm -hmm. I don't think Jesus had much of that either. But still, no. the message is the love part. Mm -hmm. So when we get to some examples in the Bible of maybe what it looks like to not be someone who holds on to your possessions, yeah. or even if you have money that you're willing to, to part with it, you have Joseph of Arimathea who used to, was called a follower of Jesus and used his fortune yeah. for Jesus. You have then on the opposite end, the, the rich young ruler who refused to, when Jesus called him to follow him, give up his money and follow Jesus. Then you have Zacchaeus who when he was, Jesus encountered him, he gave away almost yeah, everything. He did. So. I think oftentimes we kind of look at this idea of how can we best live in the kingdom and different people are called to do different things. There's been books that have come out and kind of insinuated some some people are kings in the Bible, some people are priests in the Bible, some people are poor paupers in the Bible, yeah. and maybe we all have our role, but there's also kind of a thinking that we're, we're all called in a similar way of a heart where these things don't really mm -hmm. matter. Yep, so then we get to the eye of the body. So it talks about lamps here, so lamps, give off light. Yeah. And so we usually see the eyes as the thing that lets things into the body. It's a different cultural dynamic mm -hmm. that we need to get in here. Yeah, but in the first century, they saw the eyes as a window that let out what was within you. And yeah. um, Augustine even says, rays shine through the eyes and touch whatever it sees. Yeah. And then we kind of have a play on good and bad fruit that mm -hmm. I think we're going to get to a little yeah. bit later. Yeah, we'll get to that in chapter 7 when we get there. But these words for healthy and unhealthy that Jesus talks about with the eyes, are the same Greek words that are for generous and stingy. So that goes off of the possession thing right before yeah. the treasures. So if your right. eye is healthy, you're going to be generous. And we've talked about the evil eye before, mm -hmm. how that was a greedy eye, how that uh -huh. was, you know, always looking into things and wanting, you know, the grass is greener on the other yeah. side. And this is very relevant to today's mm -hmm. society. I mean, that is America, that we want yeah. what the Jones have. Yeah, and that's that connection to the darkness. If you have darkness in you, it's going to... How great is that darkness? It's going to let it out yeah. if you have that greed. So this flushes into the two masters part. And um, the thing we always come back to is the first commandment about having no other gods before you. Yeah, and that literally means having no other gods in God's face. And this yeah. connects to the Shema also. Hear, O Israel, yeah. the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And so there, the point of this is there's only one master, and that's the Lord. Yeah. Now, the translation here is in most Bibles is money, but mammon is probably a better word to really describe that. And yeah, so mammon um, is more about possessions. We talked about that spirit of acquiring, but it was actually a, an ancient god yeah. uh, derived from the Aramaic term ammon, um, which meant to trust or reliance on, uh, to place one's trust in. So it's kind of Jesus saying, where's your allegiance lie? Yes. Yeah. So is it in your possessions or is it in your trust in the Lord? Yeah. It was the same kind of war over prosperity and power because the ancient mindset with other gods was the prosperity mm -hmm. principle. Yeah. That if you wanted to honor these gods, they, they were all looking for something out of people. They needed people for something. And so mm -hmm. the people would play into that. And as a result, yeah. they hoped that the gods would, you know, keep them from famine or pestilence mm -hmm. or something like that. And throughout all of the Old Testament, people are trying to figure out where the one true God, Yahweh, is in this kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. So when we get to kind of the bottom line here, Jesus gives us two options. You can either leave, live for God or you can live for stuff. One or the other, yep. So you can't have both. <laughs> so 
Uh, the major theme in this whole section is that we need to simplify our lives so that we can live the kingdom calling that God, that Jesus has placed on us. So yeah. the Lord's Prayer focuses on this with um, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the focus should be on God's will here on earth and that our reward will be in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, and it, our possessions here that we acquire aren't, like they aren't going with us. <laughs> so. Next we have a, a part on do not worry. Let me read this. It says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store them away in barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you be by worrying at a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers in the field glow, grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes you, the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek ye first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given unto you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has, has enough troubles of its own. Yeah, so we got to remember who is Jesus addressing here, So, and what's the topic. So yeah. the topic is, this is about, starting the Mount is got Jesus' kingdom ethic. This is what it looks like to be kingdom people. Yeah, He's addressing disciples and not just people who are in a time of trouble. I think oftentimes when we read this, we want to read some kind of pestilence, turbulence into yeah. it, things like that. And yeah. oftentimes Jesus's relationship is to the poor and the down mm -hmm. and out. And so yeah. typically when we read Jesus's words, we're kind of contextualizing them amongst the poor. And I think that we do that in our Western mindsets yeah. that it doesn't affect us. Yeah. So, you know, we feel like God's not speaking right to us, but in this, he makes it very clear that God is speaking right to us. Yeah, and this is all about trust. So in Matthew, end of Matthew 9, beginning of Matthew 10, Jesus sends out his disciples and he tells them specifically not to take provisions for their mission, but to trust that the Father will provide for him. And Jesus yeah. himself did this. He was an itinerant. And we see this in Matthew chapter 8 also. So there, it's a big theme in, in Matthew is to trust God, when he sends you out, that he's going to provide for you. It always is interesting. The answer to any question in Sunday school is always Jesus. But, you know, we we still, after this phrase, what would Jesus do is popular years ago, it's still a great way to kind of weigh out where you're at. I mean, what would Jesus do? What did he do? He was itinerant. He didn't really own anything. He just walked around without a worry in the world, professing the kingdom and what was important. Yeah, so this kind of comes down to it. So, like, if you have an anxiety, it's kind of the barometer of who's your God. So, yeah. we just got off of this thing of mammon versus God are you they're equated they're don't equated. have anxiety because that's just as bad as uh -huh. worshiping money or mammon mm -hmm. or a false God or something yeah. like that yeah Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 and 7 says don't be anxious in everything in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to God and the God of peace who transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus now there's a little bit of a repetition thing going on here he gets to the birds and flowers and it seems like he's repeating what he just said. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very similar, but in Hebrew, there's a reiteration method that if you want somebody to get something, you say it three times. Sometimes we even see a double portion of that applied where we see it not only three, but then done again, so six times altogether. So you kind of have that feeling of this is important. This is something that Jesus really wants his listeners to get in this message. Yeah, I believe he brings up worry like six times in this whole yeah. section, and every time he brings it up, well, he gives the two illusions, and then he has Mount Worry in the beginning, or in, at the beginning, the middle, and the very end. So they're kind of yeah. like this chiasm. <laughs> oh. Now, 
A lot of people take this section to be very rhetorical, like they're not really sure exactly what Jesus is saying. Mm -hmm. And whenever that happens within the text where we're reading something that, that doesn't quite flow right or, you know, just raises red flags because of the words, you, you go, well, what's going on here? And then we jump into the research, the culture, everything else. What do you find when you do that here within the text? Um, specifically, the pagan part. So when you're looking at that, like, it seems like he just says, oh, well, pagans do these things and yeah. throws it out. But he's giving actually a, a visual illustration here right. because right north of where they were, you have Tiberius, which is a Roman city where there was wine, fornication, uh, partying, opulence, that whole life. And this is a real life example of what a disciple should not be doing. Yeah. So, so it's a pretty neat wordplay how mm -hmm. Jesus is kind of using this, something yeah. that everybody references that they can understand, and oftentimes that's kind of the brick that comes down and hits people, where we mm -hmm. don't necessarily get that reading the text, and that's one of the areas that culturally it's important that when you yeah. go back and understand that, it, it makes more sense yeah. in the context. Not that you necessarily need that, and that's one of the things mm -hmm. I love about Jesus' words the most, is that they can stand alone even if you don't have those word plays yeah. within the context, but they're richer when you understand mm -hmm. that. Yeah, so he's basically saying you don't need this excess, like the pagans you see around you are, are living in. Your father will loves you and he will meet your needs, Yeah. so you don't have to worry. Um, and then he goes into seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness. So the strategy here is to pursue God's kingdom and his righteousness and not the things of the pagans. So this brings up a question. When Jesus is talking about this, oftentimes we think that the kingdom and the word righteousness are synonymous. Like that is kind of the definition of one and the other and they're interchangeable. Do you think that's what he's intending or do you think there's something else going on? Um, well, usually when we think of righteousness in a western context we think of moral perfection yeah <laughs> that's kind of our that's thing. what we do in that's america what we think. Yeah. um and so if we take kingdom which is was kind of jesus's shorthand for basically the story of israel all being wrapped up in in jesus think of the spheres we always uh -huh. talk about when yep. they when they interchange yeah. yeah so god's space our space overlapping that's the kingdom and the righteousness is has to do with those spheres but it's more about covenant faithfulness and god's saving power so when we combine both the kingdom and the righteousness ideas it comes back to the lord's prayer your will be done on earth as it is in heaven yeah. so god's will is the righteousness the covenant faithfulness is saving power his kingdom is that will being brought on earth as it is in heaven so this actually could be a little bit of a wordplay on the kingdom and the righteousness intersecting in mm -hmm. those spheres as well, that as image bearers were to remain faithful to our original vocation mm -hmm. of having God, Jesus inside of us and taking that to everybody. And as we do those things, you know, part of us will be in the world, but part of us is in the spiritual realm and it's this constant battle and we're hoping that we're getting more here than we are down there. Yep. Um, so now this go gets into judging. So this is the beginning of chapter seven, the first um, six verses. It says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll be able to cleverly, or you'll be able to clearly remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So Jesus often starts out very comfortable. It's mm -hmm. it's kind of like, you know, a Sunday morning servant sermon where everybody's joking, it's happy-go-lucky. Mm -hmm. But then by the end of Jesus's message, you can feel the tension bind. And typically that's when he's starting to kind of call out people like the Pharisees. But in this case, it's not just Pharisees. It's kind of calling out everybody. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. 
So yeah, so when we look at the Bible, um, we embody ourselves in the story. Yeah. So we see that one command after another and prophetic evaluations in the Hebrew Bible and um, where God's people's sin is basically made a spectacle of. Yeah. And we get into that story and we almost, since the Bible's often told from God's perspective, yeah. we put ourselves in God's seat. This is hard because as image bearers, we are essentially little gods. We're mm -hmm. a God's representation and, and the very being of the core of who we are should be God, but that's not saying that we should replace God. Yeah. That was the whole Tower of Babel thing problem going <laughs> yeah. on. And God goes, no, this isn't yeah. what it's about. So where this flushes out is we all want to judge. We all want to be little demigods kind mm -hmm. of judging everybody around us. And he's saying, don't do that. Yeah, I think James points it out well. Brothers and sisters, just do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister um, or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it. By sitting in judgment over it, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So this text here like, kind of provides a window into what Jesus is getting at. Do not, when we say do not judge, we assume the posture of God. And what this is really getting at is not so much discernment, but condemnation. Yeah. So we're taking the place that God is the one who decides. I hear a lot of people saying, well, how can you go through life and not judge anything? Aren't we called to kind of judge? You know, that's kind of mm -hmm. what sin is. Are you going to decide to do this or not do that? But that's really not judgment. That's mm -hmm. discernment. Yeah, so and we need so to make a difference there. When people are talking about godly wisdom, wisdom, God is saying that we need to have discernment over those things. But mm -hmm. judgment here is looked at condemnation. And yeah, and so... I like the way John Wesley put it is um, the judging that Jesus condemns here is thinking about another person in a way that is contrary to love. Yeah. We see this in the Bible, uh, usually in the terms of moral discernment, but it also applies to government direction sometimes. Mm -hmm. and um, Lawsuits. Yeah, we get lawsuits. We also get the final judgment of mm -hmm. God, which you don't really know a lot about what that is. Why? Why? Why do Christians need to be judged if they're going to go to heaven at that point? And that's just some implications we won't get yeah. into today. <laughs> yeah. So, all through the Sermon on the Mount here, Jesus is talking about the difference between good and bad and choosing, judging, discerning right. What, right. Is, what is good and bad. And so, right here, he's specifically talking about condemning people. It is not our job to condemn people. Yeah. So... Yeah. Do not condemn or you too mm -hmm. will be condemned is kind yeah. of the, the the message there. And then there's a little bit uh, later, there's some talk about forgiveness and reconciliation mm -hmm. kind of doing that, that if yeah. you don't forgive, then you also won't be forgiven. So, you know, those, those two thoughts of thinking are very, and, and, and it's interesting here that this whole thing is really about the journey. Mm -hmm. we, we don't get a picture of momentary salvation anywhere in this. And that theme even gets... Yeah. I mean, this is where it starts, but it yeah. really kind of jumps from mm -hmm. here on out. And yeah, so, and then in verse 2, Jesus um, uses the word judge and measure, and this is Jewish parallelism. It's saying one thing with two words. Yeah, this is so, beautiful. So, I yeah, love this. so um, it's basically saying that God is the final judge because God alone is the judge. Yeah. We are not the one who decides the verdict for anybody. Now we go into the famous plank and speck. A lot of people know this. Even if they're not Christians, mm -hmm. they talk about the plank in their own eye and you know, the specs and things like that. What What is kind of going on? Is this just a comical scene? Is this, you know? I think Jesus is, yeah, being comical, but in a deadly serious way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he's saying that 
really when you're trying to point out somebody's own sin, you better have the sin in your life. Yeah. <laughs> you better have it that nailed. <laughs> so, yeah. so Paul uses a similar example in Romans 1 Camel, and 2. Matt, things like that coming too. Yeah, yeah. Jesus' other examples in Matthew 19 and 23, he yep. uses the same examples with a camel and a gnat rather than sawdust and a... But Romans one and two. Yeah, like Romans this. one and two. So Romans is often thought of in Western theology as a Paul's systematic. But uh, is it? No. <laughs> so we got to every single one of Paul's letters is occasional. Yeah. He's writing about a certain occasion, and then usually, every single time, it's about Jews and Gentiles yeah. in a church together that are fighting. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so we got to remember the context of Romans. So Claudius, when he's emperor, kicks the Jews out of Rome. Uh, when Claudius dies, Nero takes over, welcomes all the Jews back. So when the Jews are coming back, this is about the time Paul is writing this letter, there's a fight in the church because the power structure has changed. There's a weak, <laughs> strong thing going yep. on so here. So everything where... in Romans, you should read it through the weak and the strong. That lens should be your interpretive lens for the entire book. And that kind of is a preface for later letters to churches that mm -hmm. are going to come out, and that's yep. what we struggle with a lot. There's a, yeah. there's a real struggle in our churches over the weak and the strong. Yeah, so Romans 1 to 3 is actually a dialogue with a judgmental or a condemning Jew, yeah. or sometimes they call it the teacher. So yeah. we know the verse, is, <laughs> the verse, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation. People love to quote this one. And then you got the judgmental Jew, but the Jew first. <laughs> and Paul says, also to the Greeks. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you get it right there it's a dialogue back and forth and so most of Romans 1 is all after that section it's all the judgmental Jew and he's basically quoting the exact same argument from Wisdom of Solomon 12 to 15 yep. and which was the perennial text for Jews judging pagans yep and so Paul is doing that and then he answers them but you the first verse of chapter Romans chapter 2 is this basically echoing the exact same thing that Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount you're condemning you're judging it's really interesting to me how we have this message in the Old Testament, we have it again with Jesus, and then mm -hmm. Paul reiterates it, that trifecta thing yep. I was talking about earlier, yep. and the message is always, don't act as God. Everybody mm -hmm. sins, your sins are no greater, no worse yep. than the next person in God's eyes, We've that we sinned. need to live <laughs> in love and not condemnation of mm -hmm. those around us, uh, encouraging in the kingdom, yep. yet today, that is just not a picture of what we really no. have. Yeah, and that's Paul's whole, the peak of his argument at the end of Romans 3 yeah. is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yeah. And so he's saying, so don't judge. Um, so yeah, so the alternative to condemning then Jesus gets to is that we should be concerned with our own sin more than the sin of others. This is a message of condemnation, not, uh, or I'm sorry, restoration, yep. not condemnation. Yep. And so this is a huge topic in the Christian world today of, all kinds of people that are at opposites with what yep. Christians are. You kind of yep. have, you know, people have made decisions to have abortions, people that are in the LGBT community. Um, I could keep going and going yeah. and going, but all of these things that are seem sinful according to the Word of God, and it seems like the church can't quite reconcile how to simply love and not condemn as Jesus would. Yeah, it's really a tripping point for the church. Yeah. So, yeah, so. We have Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, talking about the role of judging within the church. And he says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not the judge of those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So... We kind of get into church yeah. discipline here. Uh -huh. So there's... there's He kind of takes this and said, This is how you should be. And what I just talked about of 
the biggest problem within Christianity is actually usually, unfortunately, within the walls of the church. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting that Paul identifies that all the way back here, and we're still struggling with this today. Yeah, so, and we got to remember, um, Paul says in Romans 2, his argument there to the response to the judgmental Jew there is that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. This is a, this is a, this is a funnel into purity and holiness. Mm -hmm. So in the Old Testament, the law was in order to keep people aligned with the purity and holiness of God. And, mm -hmm. and they haven't gotten away from that in the New yeah. Covenant. And this is a reminder to that, that we're still called to live set-apart lives, pure and holy, unto the Lord. Yep, and then we get to the pearls before swine part, um, which... And this still goes into that sacred, sacred plane. Yep. So, you mm -hmm. know, we're we're in this thing where, you know, Paul, mm -hmm. Paul is doing something beautiful here. He's using a lot of Old Testament things that people aren't sure if they're still there, if they're not in yeah. the New Covenant, and he's reiterating them with different words. And then Jesus, with the pearls before swine, is going to, again, with a beautiful mm -hmm. kind of wordplay, kind of do the same type of thing. Talk yeah. about sac the sacredness of the gospel, but in a different way. Yeah, and so when we get to the literary structure here of this, we got a chiasm, so it's... Um, you kind of got A and A and B and B, so it almost like makes a peak. So the first line is, don't give to dogs what is sacred. The last line connects with that. They'll turn and tear you to pieces. The two middle lines are about the pigs, so don't throw pearls to pigs, um, or they'll trample it under their feet. So This is a weird section of scripture. Uh -huh. So throughout the Bible, we have places that we don't really know what to do with mm -hmm. as theology people. And so we have words that sometimes we don't find anywhere else in the Bible. Then we go to outside texts and we say, well, what did they mean in their text if we only yeah. have it once in the Bible? We kind of line those up culturally. Occasionally, uh -huh. there's words that we don't have anywhere. They're yeah. only in the Bible. Yeah, and we got into this with daily bread last time. Yeah. So. And so this is, again, one of those things where we kind of get to it and we go, what is this? Mm -hmm. We don't, like the last one, we can go back and we can say, well, there is a city attached with what Jesus was saying. And we, we know that. But here... We don't really know what to do with this. Is it yeah. is did it mean something in Mishnaic Hebrew or Aramaic or something yeah. like that? I mean, we can try to make something out of it, but frankly, this is just one of those places that people often scratch their head over and go, "Well, it could yeah. mean a bunch of different stuff." Yeah. So Jesus uses two animals that were like the lowest of the low to to Jews here. Um, so. Jesus may be labeling people who despise the kingdom in this way. Yeah. So, like I said, it is a very confusing. Uh, Part, but we're coming out of the context here of not judging and not worrying and being generous. So I think that there's a couple options that we can connect these with that context. Pearls throughout the Bible usually have some kind of a meaning of kingdom context. Yeah, yeah. So there's the pearl of great price, that parable in in Matthew. But um, so this could mean something similar also to where where Jesus says gives the instructions to dust off your feet if your message is rejected. Not worth it. Yeah. So he's saying don't. Put your pearls, the message of the kingdom, the gospel, before the people that are going to basically reject it. Don't waste your time on somebody whose heart is so hardened. That's kind of where I land with it because mm -hmm. it, it fits the yeah. overall lens of what Jesus is doing. Jesus oftentimes just seems like he's very missional, mm -hmm. and if it's not going to happen, yeah. he leaves. Yeah, and sometimes these dogs and pigs were slurs for Gentiles. Um, yeah. almost derogatory yes. terms for them. And Jesus, we see in his mission when he comes, it's to the lost sheep of Israel. Right. Eventually, after his resurrection, um, before the ascension, he gives the the Great Commission where to go into all the world. So yeah, but at this point, it seems like Jesus before the cross is focused on Israel just as God was in the Old Testament. Yeah, there might be something else here that we're mm -hmm. not getting that was yeah. in the culture that we've never yeah. unraveled or discovered, but just taking what we do know 
those ideas mm -hmm. are easily kind of put together that way too. And it yeah. does just kind of almost bring a conclusion to what he's been talking yeah. about in the previous context. Now, a second option here that um, A.J. Levine gives in her commentary on um, Beginner's Guide to Sermon on the Mount, which is excellent too. So she takes it coming out of the judgment text that Jesus and coming out of the possessions text is, if you are giving possessions to the poor, don't give it to someone who's going to squander your gifts. Right. <laughs> so it's saying be discerning in how you how you give and how how you're generous and how you give up your possessions. Yeah. Do it strategically. What's interesting, this is written pre-Paul. Mm -hmm. And then throughout the Pauline epistles, we kind of see mm -hmm. Paul take the same mindset that those churches that seem to be stuck on milk, as he writes, we see a whole lot less time, mm -hmm. effort to than the ones that seem to be flourishing. Yep. So let's kind of recap where we've gone here before we move forward with the rest of chapter seven. So our focus is supposed to be off of acquisition, the spirit of acquisition and money, because they run contrary to Jesus's kingdom vision. So we can only serve one master. Yep. yep. <laughs> and then we got, don't worry or be anxious because God knows your needs. Usually if we're worried and anxious, it's because of that spirit of acquisition yeah. that we want to acquire things. My favorite part where this goes is that we are ambassadors for God's reconciliation. Yep. So our role as humans is to show God's love and mercy to others and not be God's method of condemning people. We can discern, but don't condemn. Yep. yep. So, yeah, so that's kind of the big picture of what we got here. Um, then we get into ask, seek, and knock. So um, it says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks uh, receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks the door will be open. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone or if, or a fish, give him a snake? Um, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give, give, good, give good gifts to those who ask of Him? So there's three verbs we're talking about ask, seek, and knock. And people's perspective on this traditionally that don't really understand Greek take on a different form meaning than I yeah. think when you really get into it. Where, where do you see Yeah, these? they usually make them as present imperatives, so a command to do now, meaning yeah. that we're supposed to be persistent, not give up in our asking, seeking, and knocking. But the thing here we need to be careful with this persistence theme is that we sometimes create a God who seems to be either too tired or busy or uninterested in us, and so we must be persistent to get God's attention. Right. And so we do know that God is always interested in all mm -hmm. of his people. And so, yeah. you know, it does come back to a little bit of that retribution yeah. principle, though. I mean, is yeah. are those who have a deeper relationship with God going to be able to get things that other people aren't going to get? And, boy, you can argue that both ways in the Bible, mm -hmm. but I think the overwhelming theme is to not think that way yeah. to don't do this because you're of, a, of some kind of expectation for reward and you know it's almost like you know the underlying theme is yeah in the heavens it might actually work like this occasionally but that's that's god stuff that's not for you to think about yeah, and coming off the context of worrying where he says not to worry because your father knows your needs before you ask right. and that right. so this almost is like maybe balancing it out a little bit so it does it does bring up the question does god really care about personal petitions you know mm -hmm. we I think if you're on the Calvinist side of the fence where all these things were just set in a course and it yeah. just happens, you know, why even pray? You know, yeah. why do any of this stuff? And so that same kind of feeling comes up here of, you know, if God's not going to listen to my requests because of my faithful obedience as his representative here on earth, then am I wasting my time in petition and prayer? Yeah, and then that gets into also the question, does God change history because we pray or oh, that's because we one. don't pray? Yeah. And check out uh, our video with Greg Boyd. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't really get into this, but a lot of the information that he talked about in that will get into your mindset of 
yeah. of, of this here with God in the future and stuff like that. So, so Jesus kind of goes into this idea of prayer, and there's a lot of prophetic and wisdom tradition themes that are kind of being built into mm -hmm. this, very reminiscent of what we would have had, let's say, in Jeremiah. Yeah, so built in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29 and Proverbs 8, 17 says, asking it will be given to you. Yeah. They both give that theme. So I don't think Jesus was naive here, but I think he's using a little bit of exaggerated rhetoric. With People the take this too far. I yeah. think in his day, they took it too far. In our day, they took it too mm -hmm. far. So this is kind of a reeling in or yeah. uh, coming back to Jesus. Moment. Yeah. So Jesus even knew his disciples prayed and didn't get what they want. You can look in Matthew 14, Matthew 17, um, James chapter four, he's yeah. um, going off on the Sermon on the Mount here. James 4, 3, when you ask, uh, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it to get your pleasures. And N.T. Wright has a good comment on this, which says the problem for most of us is that we're not, not that we're too eager to ask for the wrong things, but we're not eager enough to ask for the right things. This brings me to um, the Garden of the Gethsemane. When when Christ is there and he's talking to his father and asks if it's, you know, cup take, pass. take this cup from me. Really a fascinating point in scripture. And you are you and I are always kind of identifying these really tough things of what do we do with this, mm -hmm. you know? Like, what what if God would have said, all right, let's do it a different way. Well, let's bring down the legions of angels and everything yeah. else, you know? Yeah. Didn't but happen. No, Jesus' prayer didn't get answered, but Jesus' mindset when he was praying was, even if this doesn't get answered, your will be done. Yeah, and that takes me back to Daniel, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Mm -hmm. You know, they say, but Lord, if it doesn't happen, yep. that you are still faithful, you mm -hmm. are still obedient, yep. you are still God. Yeah, and so when we get to verses 7 and 8 here, it's not a promise that we'll get whatever we ask for. Instead, Jesus is addressing the doubting disciples who need to be assured that God loves them and that they can trust God. And so that is that is the, the method, and that's the reason why the disciples should ask, seek, and yeah. knock, is because they have a good father who isn't going to give them something evil when they ask for something good. So obviously I'm into biblical theology, so are you. Mm -hmm. This is what we dwell in, not necessarily systematic Thematic. theology where we already poked at that. Mm -hmm. All theology is a constraint of man. It's man yep. trying to make sense of, of the Bible, but at least within biblical theology we're really just going back to making sense of what the text says. But your theology, the way you think about the scripture and your understanding hermeneutically of what it said is going to shape your relationship mm -hmm. with God. And so here we kind of see that wherever we take a stand on what's going on here, our mm -hmm. theology of prayer, yep. our relationship with God, that's going to change the way that we represent him as a light yep. bearer and interact as Christians with the church and with the world. Yeah, it's also going to affect the way that we pray. Um, yeah. If you believe that, yeah, you got to yell and scream out for God to hear you. And if you don't say this prayer 800 times that God isn't going to answer it. And right. it really, if that's your theology, you have a theology that doesn't really look like the picture that we see of here that Jesus is saying that we have a good father who, before we even, before yeah. we even ask, he knows our needs and he takes care of us. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's very different. We talked about in the Lord's Prayer that the Lord's Prayer isn't a, a system or a formula for getting on God's yep. good side, but it's about formation of our faith and yeah. trusting God and getting in line with his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. A lot of people like to preach in terms of topical sermons. Matt mm -hmm. and I usually try to stick more to exegesis type of stuff. Yeah. But if you were preaching a topical sermon on prayer, mm -hmm. I think it would actually just bring you back into more of an exegesis on <laughs> yep. what's going on here. Yep, exactly. So the next section is the narrow and the wide gates. I'll read that. So in everything, do to others 
what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now, everybody knows, again, about the gates. You hear mm -hmm. this all the time. People that aren't even in the Christian faith kind of ask questions about what is the narrow gate, the narrow road, things yeah. like that. Why is it narrow? Why isn't it yeah. wide? It's remnant thinking, but let's break this down a little bit. All right, so yeah, there's two ways that we can approach Torah. So we start off with this section with the golden rule. So yep. um, so let's just take that because I think that gives us a window into right. the gates. Yep. Um, so the ways we can approach Torah is we can multiply Torah or we can reduce Torah. Right. So when we multiply, we make more rules to cover every situation, every contingency. That's this is what... the liberalism side where things become checklists yeah. and you go, are you, are you on yeah. task? Are you not on task? Things like that. Yeah. And then we got the reduction side, which was what Jesus takes and he reduces everything to its essence. So we got the legalistic side, make more rules, the liberalism side, anything goes. Sometimes we get ditches on both. Jesus, yep. he kind of meets it in the middle. He's more on the the, the reduction side because he breaks it down to in back in um, forward in Matthew, Matthew 22, that the two greatest commands, yeah. the, the Jesus, Jesus Creed, yeah, yeah there love you go. God with all your heart, soul, yeah. mind, and strength, love your neighbors yourself, yeah. all the law and the prophets hang on this. Yep. So Jesus doesn't abolish the law, but he shows us a new way to look at it, that all of the law is about loving God and loving others. So it's really interesting when you talk about the law, what we know of the law, we think of first as the basic Ten Commandments, and then mm -hmm. from there you have all these other laws, which are kind of stopgap thinking to try to keep people in that pursuit of holiness. Yeah. 613, 642, you might think of that differently. Mm -hmm. But what most people don't realize is from that point there became a whole bunch of other laws. And so these are the rabbinical laws, the rabbinical code. Mm -hmm. There is no number for this. I mean, it gets up yeah. into the thousands of, you know, how do these things. And so when you're reading the stories of Jesus offending the Pharisees, we, we know that Jesus kept the law. He and when he says the law... It's not the oral Torah, and it's not the rabbinical. He keeps to his father's law, but he doesn't keep to the rabbinical law. And yep. so all these Pharisees are getting really upset because he's walking out of this, which in essence is really kind of saying, that's not the law that yeah. my father gave us. Yeah, it's not about multiplication. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's that's legalism. Jesus wasn't, wasn't about that. So, um, yeah, and kind of when we talk about getting the reductionist view and it goes too far, it gets yep. into all grace and anything goes, antinomianism, yep. that's not what Jesus was either. So, um, we this got, had been around for a while. This oh, wasn't yeah. necessarily new. I mean, people have been fighting this for a while. That's probably where we get the Essenes kind of leaving this mm -hmm. and becoming radicals and starting another sect because the Pharisee thing didn't work. They were mm -hmm. saying, you know, we want to be devoted to this. And so then maybe John mm -hmm. the Baptist is part of that. But eventually yep. he probably leaves or gets kicked out because there's a just there's a lot going on here. Yeah. So like you said, this idea of the golden rule wasn't new to Jesus. Right. Judaism saw this, yet they didn't go far enough. Probably. Like we say, the Reformation did some good things, but didn't go far enough. Yeah. <laughs> so. so this is this is neat how James 2, 8, 9 says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing it right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Mm -hmm. And then Hillel. Um, we see this in the Babylonian Talmud. Mm -hmm. um, and so Hillel was the rabbi of Gamil, who was Paul, Saul's rabbi and he was approached by a pagan who said um i'll become a proselyte on one condition that you teach me the entire torah standing on one leg and so Hillel stood on one leg and replied to him 
What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Go, Go and learn. learn. Yep. <laughs> so, yep. so there's three illustrations here with paths, gates, gifts, deeds, kind of two ways yep, about it. That's how he finishes out the Sermon on the Mount yep. is with three different illustrations. So this first one here is the gates and the entrances. So the gates and the paths, and they usually entrances to cities or temples had, had gates. Yeah. So that you're going to have this gate at the temple, and this is kind of where the center of mm -hmm. commerce takes place. It's not only keeping evil out the doors, mm -hmm. but it's also the place where justice is going to prevail. Mm -hmm. People are going to work out their indifferences. Yep. It's also, this is important, the place where the covenants are cut. And mm -hmm. so when you talk about a gate, it's going to open up to actually who you are and who your family is and represents yep. the very essence of things. Yep. Kind of the courts and justice mm -hmm. scenes. Now, some take this two paths, two gates thing to strictly mean the ethical vision that Jesus is giving here in the Sermon on the Mount, so the, the narrow gate. And Jesus in John 10, 9 says that he is the gate. Yeah. So we can make, make that. Um, and in the context of the golden rule, it seems like this is the way of discipleship. Yeah, the cost. Uh-huh, yeah. yeah. So, and Paul talks about that as the journey or running the race with perseverance. Yep. Um, so, but there's another option. Yeah, so the other option is um, that it's eschatological. Yep. Um, and it seems that Luke kind of goes that way after in Luke's parallel in um, Luke 13, 23, and 24, someone asks him after he says this is, what are only a few people going to be saved? Yeah. And so when we look at saved, what, are, what context of saved are they talking about? Some think that this is talking about final destination, yeah. eschatology. Some think this is talking about 70 AD, yeah. so the destruction of the temple. I think if you lived them and 70 AD was happening, you thought it was both going on at the same yep. time, but now as we look back in history, it wasn't. So what do we make so, of it? So I think it can be both and. Yeah. Um, so in 70 AD, like we said, you had the zealots and the uprisings, and yep. Jesus saying, take my way of peace, my way of Sermon on the Mount here, and the Romans aren't going to slaughter you all. Right. You, you'll get back on path to being God's light bearers to the nations instead of picking fights with the nations. Yeah. <laughs> so. so this whole thing is this this pursuit of a kingdom ethic. Mm -hmm. It's talking about being a good disciple, about yep. following Jesus, the you know the dust of the rabbi, loving God, loving your neighbor. It's just one big thrust of the journey that God has for you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this is I think the, the gate is Jesus, but the path is the way of Jesus. It's not, and again, this doesn't talk about momentary salvation. It talks about right. the journey. The right. Bible over and over talks about the path. So he's got this whole path talking about what it looks like to be a true disciple, to be genuine uh -huh. and authentic. And right after this, he's going to phase into those that are not. looking like they're that way, but they're not, not really that way. Yep, so uh, Matthew 7, 15 to 23, we got, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but bad trees bear bad fruit. The good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and the bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by the fruit, you will recognize them. No one who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, or drive out demons in your name, and perform many miracles? Then I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now... Matt and I alluded to this earlier. This whole thing, we always want to look at the context of Scripture. So the whole thing has been describing 
a journey. Now, one of the problems we have in evangelical Christianity today is that we kind of want to take these things to be very one-time, momentary steps of salvation. Yes, we have um, Ephesians 2, you're saved by grace through faith. Our destiny is determined yeah. by works, is the theological phrase there. Yeah, so it's interesting that every single judgment scene in the entire Bible is based on works yeah. and not just on faith. We're saved by faith, yes, right. but we're judged by our works. And so evangelicals so, don't like that much. So what we see is we see in our culture right now, we see the church really preaching this momentary salvation. Put a, put a rose on the organ. It's all about this evangelization. Bring your friends to church so they, they might get saved right here. Mm -hmm. When this whole thing is talking about the journey, but it's also speaking to, obviously, somebody at some point has to come to a saving knowledge or faith, the allegiant yeah. faith to Jesus. But I always say we don't know when that is. And sometimes... I think that that's what Paul's getting at when he's talking about milk. Yeah, <laughs> is yeah. only he's like, I wish I could take you to deeper things, but yeah. you're you're not there. So the Bible balances faith and works, and we we agree with that. We're yeah. not preaching a works salvation here, but Jesus here in this section emphasizes works, so we're going to do that. Yep. So um, there's two parts of this section. There are the deceivers, and there are those who are deceived. Yep. So Jesus then prescribes a method. Um, to detect those Let's Figure people. out who's who here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So sort he gives, them out. He gives a method. <laughs> Let so. God sort them out, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> so the deceivers were false prophets, and we're told to watch out for them. Jesus also tells us to watch out back in 6-1, hypocrites. Yep. So, you know, those are play acting. Yep. The Greek theater type thing. The masks. Yep. Yeah, and then the opponents of Jesus in ten seventeen in Matthew, and then the leaven of the Pharisees and the scribes in chapter 16. So these are kind of things that all kind of play together to watch people out People always for. say, why doesn't God just spell it out? And he actually does spell yeah. it out here. Yeah, and then he gives the method of detection, and that is fruit inspection. Yeah. So fruit reveals your true character. Yep. So. So, um, so there's a little bit of a play on the word to know, and mm -hmm. so we talk about this before, but this is words of intimacy mm -hmm. in Hebrew thinking, and you yep. don't necessarily get that just reading this. Yeah. To, to So to know is, like you said, in Hebrew thought, it's intimacy with God. Um, so, in fact, it almost sometimes even in the Old Testament had a sexual so, connotation mm -hmm. with people yep. of to deeply know them. So yeah, and so the people who know God are the ones that have basically good roots, good good vines, so they produce good fruit. And the other side, so this is really important because if it, there's a contrast here, this is this group, this is the other group, and those that do not know Him. So we're just speaking mm -hmm. to this; those who are on, you know, might be on the milk. We don't know where yeah. that line is, you mm -hmm. know, and He's. He, he calls them, they don't know the will of the Father, the evildoers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so the grapes don't grow on thorn bushes, and thistles and figs don't go together. So he's saying that if you aren't the right kind of tree, you're not going to produce fruit. The right kind of tree is the one who is following the way of Jesus. The yeah. fruit is what we see here in context is not just hearing God's word, but doing God's word. And there's such a simplicity uh -huh. to this because really it comes down to the golden rule in the Jesus creed. This yep. is how to follow Jesus yep. essentially is what he's saying. Yeah, I think that the the thing here um, that we're seeing is that, it, yeah, he reduces it just to that, loving God and loving others. And when we get to the, the people that are deceived here kind of in this eschatological, the hypothetical end times judgment is it seems like they have failed at the basics. Yeah. Now there's a there's something to be spoken here when we get to we're both part of a spirit-filled church and I always like kind of cringe with the spirit gifts here. It's not because I don't believe them and it's mm -hmm. not because I don't think that they're worthy or anything like that, but 
this does kind of play into that kind of thinking of kind of a warning to some uh-huh. of that stuff that's going on. Yeah, it talks about all these miracles and stuff that are going on, and we did this in your name, and these people were healed, and we cast out demons, and I speak in tongues, and this, and Jesus is like, but you didn't know me. Yeah. He's like, it's about intimacy, it's walking with the rabbi, and so many revivals that we've seen through American history and the history of the world have, when they focus on the signs and the wonders and get off their focus off of Jesus is when it goes crazy and when, yeah. it, and when it dies, actually. It's really to know Jesus is to know the word the, the word of God itself. And we kind of talk about this Jesus created the kingdom. Like mm-hmm. the, w- what Jesus is asking for here is incredibly simple, uh-huh. yet we all fail to do it because we start putting other things in the way mm-hmm. and complicating it yeah. and wanting to be self-righteous. And he kind of ends on this. He talks mm-hmm. about the the wise and the foolish builders. Yeah, so the verse 24 at the end of the chapter here in, in Matthew 7 says, Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it didn't fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But anyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains came, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. So this is the third element within the Sermon on the Mount, and mm-hmm. it's really neat how Jesus just kind of puts lays it out here mm-hmm. in the form of a parable. I, I've always loved his parables yeah. because he's able to do this, but he's essentially saying, imagine if we had a world and we became different people in this world and worked for a different kingdom mm-hmm. but we did it now yeah. while we're on the earth a, a lot of times we have this pie in the sky thinking of we're Going we're working for the kingdom later it's yep. not now and this yep. is really kingdom now thinking yeah so he's saying that we need to be doers of the word not just hearers of the word and the kingdom is now and it's not just about getting people to say a sinner's prayer yeah. to get them to the kingdom in the future but right. we're supposed to teach people to as we walk teach people to walk like Jesus. So throughout here, we've seen a lot of two-option thinking, I'll yep. call it. We're going to contrast Pharisees to the followers in Christ. We're mm-hmm. going to look at hypocrites versus the followers of Christ. We're going to look at good treasure, bad treasure, good eyes, evil eyes, God, mammon, anxiety versus seeking the kingdom, broad versus the narrow, good and bad trees, and now we have doing versus not doing. Yep, so the wise man built his house on a solid foundation. So. This is the path in the way of Jesus, the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount. So, and then the fool represents the one who hears but doesn't do. And I think so much in churches today, we have a lot of people that are just butts in the pew and aren't. We need them to do. Jesus calls his disciples not just to trust or believe or affirm propositions about him, but to be his hands and feet in the world. It's very eloquent how he just, the whole Sermon mm-hmm. on the Mount lays this out carefully yeah. one at a time saying, this is really a simple calling. Don't be like this, don't be mm-hmm. like this. Just just simply follow me with the heart and love that I have for those and you know, think now, yeah. not later. And the conclusion to this with the wise and the foolish builders, I mean, it, it couldn't be any more beautifully pulled in as, as kind of conclusive thoughts. Yeah, so when we're looking at that storm that 
eschatological judgment. We look at the building as what one's entire life journey, was on. Yes. So the journey. And then the sand is the, or the rock is the foundation. So are you being a doer of what Jesus has called us to, living out your kingdom calling, right. or are you just hearing about it and not doing anything with yeah. it? So Because if you're just a, a hearer, it's going to result in ruin, and uh -huh. there's no way to get away from that. Yeah. So, what do we have with this last section? Bring it, bring it in a little so, bit. Let's conclude the entire Sermon on the Mount is an invitation. <laughs> We're doing the whole thing, all right. Yeah, it's a, I just meant the little section, okay. but let's do the whole thing. I, I like think that. it all ties in because these last three <laughs> examples are how you put into practice everything before. So yeah. the, the, the last three things were the wide and the narrow gate, the good fruit and the bad fruit, yeah. the, um, the sand or the rock. And this is kind of a new way of living. This uh -huh. is getting out of the old yeah. traditional rabbinical law and uh -huh. thinking more simply to follow Jesus. Yeah, so Jesus gives three analogies of how you can respond. It's like either you can do this or you don't. So the Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to a new way to live. It's the kingdom way to live. Yeah. So it's not simply to accept and believe in Jesus, but it's to live like he lives and do what yeah. he says. And we kind of get into the doing and the practicing to be righteous. Yeah, so doing and practicing are more ordinary terms for what a Jew would have re equated to righteousness, exceeding yeah. the righteousness of the Pharisees, as Jesus says. This so. is such great kingdom thinking. Mm -hmm. It's a vision for yeah. what he's trying to get the church to later follow. Mm -hmm. And so this is where I say, like, it was relevant to where he was right then, yeah. but it's perhaps one of the most relevant ones to where we are right now, because yeah. this is still the vision for us. Yeah, so James chapter 1, 25 says, don't merely listen to the word, that word there is Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> really yeah. listen to Jesus and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law, and in here the perfect law is what James also calls the royal law, which is love the Lord your God with your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it. They will be blessed in what they do. Good. So Sermon on the Mount, we we think sometimes people were being legalistic or trying to look at how to follow the Torah as if it was on steroids, steroids a Superman of the Torah yeah. or something like that. Jesus is dispelling all these notions yeah. and he's saying, respond to me as the king of the kingdom. Yeah, so it's not just a call to superior ethics or right. it's not only a moral vision, but it's to respond to our king and our proper response is to declare Jesus with our lives and this is how Jesus wants us to declare him with yeah. our lives. So declare that Jesus is your king and live simply this way, following me out of love for your neighbor and putting forth the kingdom of God now, mm -hmm. not later. May God bless you and keep you.